Philippians chapter 1. And our focus this morning is on verses 8 through 11. But I'll begin reading in verse 3 through verse 11. So Philippians 1, beginning at verse 3. Listen now, once again, to the reading of God's holy word. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, make your requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for the gift that you have given to us in your word. And we just pray, Father, that you would watch over us and bless us and bless this word to us this morning. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom and guidance to understand by the power of your Spirit. And that truly as your word goes forth, it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that brings forth great and abundant fruit for your glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. How well do you love? Not only as individuals, but especially as a body of Christ. How do we love? If a stranger were to walk in on a typical Lord's Day, would your love, would our love for God, for one another, for neighbor, be clearly evident to them? Now, of course, we like to think well of ourselves. We might want to say, well, yes, absolutely, we're a a very loving congregation. But before we answer so quickly, even if it's true, there's always room for improvement. We need to acknowledge that though we may love and wonderfully show it, we certainly are not perfect and we're far from it. The Apostle Paul has already expressed his confidence to the Philippian believers in, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, that God who first began working in them will surely bring them to completion, even perfection. And he sees evidence of this in how they partake with him in the ministry of the gospel. But, but just because their end is certain and secured, doesn't mean that they can now slack off and do nothing. And just kind of sit back waiting for God to bring them to completion. No, not at all. God is truly working in them. But he's working in them so that they might be active and diligent 
to work for His glory and the spread of the gospel. Friends, the same is true for us. If our faith is in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is surely working in us that we might grow in grace and knowledge of the truth so that we can, be, so that we can better serve and glorify Him in all things. And in our passage this morning, one area in which Paul would like to see the Philippians grow, and one of the areas where we can be challenged to grow, is in this area of love. Paul does this by setting forth first his own example, and then making their increase in love really the central point of his prayer for them. He wants them to grow and stretch in their faith and in their love even more than they're already doing at the present time. And so first we note Paul's own great love for these Philippian believers. Now this sentiment has been clearly evident right from the start of his letter. For example, uh, there's the constant remembrance uh, that Paul has of them during his times of prayer, as he mentions in verse 3 and 4. And then in verse 7, he boldly declares, I have you in my heart. And now in verse 8, as he's in chains several hundred miles away, he expresses a deep longing desire to see them again. You get the sense here that Paul really, really loved these people and he cared for them. He wasn't simply being polite, nor was he just throwing out shallow words with no uh, foundation in truth or sincerity. No, Paul was most serious about his feelings for the Philippian believers, so much so that he calls upon God to be his witness. He calls upon God as his witness because God alone is the discerner of hearts. Now, we know that anyone can say anything to anyone else. But how are we to know if what they say is true? Well, we can't really, at least not initially, unless they clearly show themselves to be lying, we can't truly know. And so we're left to just simply take them at their word. And the only two things, or the the only two who know for certain whether the words expressed are true, sincere and heartfelt, are the one who spoke them, and, and of course God, who is again the discerner of hearts. Well, the Philippian believers would know for certain, though, that Paul is sincere in his affection for them. You see, because they know Paul wouldn't want God to be witness if he was insincere. Certainly there may be some who will swear an oath in God's name and under false pretenses, but to do so would bring God's sure and certain judgment upon them. The Philippians know Paul, they they know him well enough to understand that he wouldn't take the name of the Lord in vain. And by calling on God as his witness, Paul is actually inviting God to examine his heart to see if these things are so, and that God would then reveal those findings in his court. Now we know God will not lie. In fact, God cannot lie. And so if Paul is insincere, God will know it, and God will reveal it. Now if your star witness is also the perfectly righteous judge who cannot lie, well then you wouldn't call him to stand if you 
we're not going to be honest. And so Paul's affections and his words expressing them are true and sincere, and the Philippians can count on this. And not only is his love and affection for them true and sincere, though, it's also all-inclusive. Already in the first eight verses, Paul has used the word all five times, and each of those times have been in direct reference to all the Philippian believers. His longing affection is for all of them, each and every one of them, young and old, for the original converts as well as newer and more recent converts. He even is expressing great love for the feuding women that are mentioned in in chapter 4. Paul loves them all. Now as an apostle, as a church planner, as a pastor and elder, Paul's example here certainly presents a great challenge to me as, as your pastor and to the elders and also to the deacons whom God has placed over you to shepherd and guide you and minister to you. We're challenged here to love all the sheep, each and every one with a true and sincere affection. Now certainly this love and affection isn't perfect because... Your elders and deacons are not perfect. But the challenge is clear. No one is to be excluded. To strive to have this true, sincere love for each and every one of you. Paul is also setting forth his example, not just to the elders and the deacons, but to the Philippian believers themselves. That they should be so devoted, not only to him and to their local leaders, but also to one another. The love and affection that Paul demonstrates here is to mark all those who call upon the name of the Lord in faith. This is why he now roots his example in an even greater example. Not only should they look to his example, but they must also seek to imitate the example that Paul follows. That is, they must seek to follow the example of Jesus. As Paul says here, how I greatly long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. But what is the affection of Jesus Christ? Well, first, it's as Christ himself is. It's pure and undefiled. It's sincere and true with honorable motives. In fact, it's as Paul describes in that well-known passage in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4-8, through where love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Friends, this is Christ. This is how He has loved us. This is a description of Christ Himself and His love for us. Well, second, this affection and love of Christ Jesus is unconditional. That is, it's given freely and abundantly even to those who don't deserve it. But this is how God, through Jesus Christ, has loved us. God didn't set His love upon us conditioned by any strength of character or virtue within us. 
That is, He didn't say, oh, I will love this one because He's so kind and lovable. Or, or I will love this one because she'll be so faithful in doing good. No, not at all. Again, Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that, that God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God set His love upon us when we didn't deserve it. When we were His enemies. When we were sinners and violators of His holy law. His gracious love then is unconditional. Being bestowed freely and abundantly upon those who don't deserve it. Thirdly, this affection and love of Christ Jesus is sacrificial. That is, it comes to us at a great cost, even the cost of His own life. Jesus says in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And Jesus demonstrated this great love when He went to the cross in our place to suffer the punishment due for our sins. And so Jesus' love and affection for us was truly sacrificial. And so this love and affection of Christ, pure, undefiled, unconditional, and sacrificial love and affection is what Paul is exhibiting toward these Philippian believers. And it's what he's calling them to exhibit as well. As this now becomes the substance of his prayer and petition on their behalf. <clears throat> now back in, in uh, verse 3-7, to seven, Paul was really preparing for this specific prayer request by first mentioning, of course, his thankfulness and his gratitude to God for the Philippian believers. And remember how he told them of his regular intercession for them, and now he has expressed his great love and affection for them. But the key part of his prayer and the specific petition comes now in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. His great longing desire is that their love may abound more and more. Now what does this mean? Well, first note that Paul acknowledges that they already have love. But he wants them to have even more than what they currently possess. Now, perhaps it's the discord between uh, the women in chapter 4 that has kind of reminded Paul and informs him that, okay, this, this group, they, they're, they're doing well and I love them, but they, they have a lot of work to do. That there's disruption between these two leading women of the congregation and it's likely affecting others. And maybe there's sides that have already been drawn. And so the love and the affection that they would have for one another as the body of Christ has been disrupted. They still have a long way to go. They're certainly far from a perfect congregation. And so he desires that their love would be abounding or overflowing more and more. Picture, if you will, a bucket. And you have a bucket and you have a, a hose and you're going to fill that, that bucket with water. And as soon as you turn the hose on, well, you have water in the bucket. And you might say, okay, great, we've got water in the bucket. It's enough. We've accomplished something. Paul says no. There's still plenty of room for more. 
And so you continue to fill that bucket. And it gets halfway full. And you find, okay, well, this is surely enough. We got a half a bucket full of water. We can do lots with this. We can put out a small fire with a half a bucket of water. And yet, Paul says, no. Keep going. And then you continue to fill the bucket. And it keeps going. It finally reaches the brim. And you're like, okay, great. We're filled to the brim. There's no more room for water in this bucket. But Paul says, no. Even when we might be content with that full bucket, Paul says, no, even more. Keep it running. Paul's desire is that there would be even more so that the water being poured into the bucket begins to run over the sides in a, in a steady stream out onto the ground and spreading, reaching far beyond the confines of the bucket so that there's no area around that bucket that's left untouched by the water that's flowing out of it. This is what Paul's desire is for the love of the Philippian believers. He isn't content for them to simply hold some love or even to be filled to the brim with love. He wants their love to overflow the sides and pour out, not only upon one another, but even stretching it out into their community and far beyond, so that so much so that everyone around them would be touched and affected by it. And the witness it declares about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said that this would be the mark of his disciples in John 13. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we would be true disciples of Jesus. Our love, especially our love for one another, should abound and overflow. As a glorious witness to his great perfect love for us. But this abounding love and affection Paul desires is qualified. That is, he wants their love to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Well, what do we make of these qualifications? Well, first, love needs guidance. Love shouldn't be blind, but should be well-informed and knowledgeable. This is the danger of our society and culture which defines love solely on feelings, emotions, or, or our desires rather than the knowledge of the person, true knowledge of the person. Right? Feelings, emotions, and desires can come and go quickly, which is one of the reasons why people fall out of love as easily as they fall into love. But marriages that are strong, which, are la- which last, are built around not just emotions, but knowledge. They grow in their love and affection for one another because they commit themselves to gaining a deeper knowledge of one another. And the more they learn, the more they love. And the more they love, the more they're driven to increase their knowledge of one another. To love someone is to know them personally and intimately. But it isn't just that the Philippian believers would have knowledge of each other, but the word Paul uses here for knowledge has the sense of real or precise knowledge. Real knowledge is true, transcendent knowledge. 
Such knowledge is that which comes down from the one true living God. This knowledge is revealed to us in God's Word. Right? Certainly God's Word has a lot to say to us and, and inform us about love. Right? What, what it is and what it isn't, what and who we should love and what and who we shouldn't love. But especially knowledge of God Himself that will deepen our love. Because we know that God is love. If we know God truly and intimately, then we know real love. Paul wants the Philippian believers to abound in their love for one another, yes, but he especially wants their love of God to be fed by real knowledge of God. And that the more they know of God, the more they'll love. And the more they love, the deeper they'll grow in their relationship with God. And since God is eternal, there will be no end to their love. It will be truly abounding and overflowing forever. And of course, they have the greater capacity to love others if they love God in such a way. And so they need to have true knowledge. Well, the second qualification regarding love is that it's to be accompanied with all discernment. Right? Discernment or insight or wisdom, maybe, is, is essentially knowing how to put your knowledge to use. It's knowing when and how to love in all situations and all circumstances. Now, if we think about it, we've all have loved, maybe have tried to love. Love isn't easy. It isn't easy when we're not perfect and when the one we want to love is not perfect. It isn't easy with those certainly closest to us. It's hard to love those closest to us at times. So imagine how challenging it would be to love others and to even think about loving others. You may have a great desire to love and show that love. But again, how do you do that with someone who may need correction? Or someone who's stricken with poverty or has great needs or is in the midst of great suffering? How do you show love to the one who is your unbelieving neighbor? How do you show love to those who have harmed you and who may be your enemies? How do you even begin to love those who simply are unlovely? This is why we need wisdom and discernment to guide our love in these situations. So we know how to act and even what words to speak that will best demonstrate love. Because without discretion and wisdom, we could do more harm than good in trying to love others. And so we need true knowledge and we need discernment to go along with our great love and abounding love. So the key petition that Paul lifts up on behalf of the Philippians is that they should abound in love guided by knowledge of God and discernment and wisdom so that they can apply their love appropriately and most effectively. But his prayer isn't concluded yet. There's a purpose or particular outcome he has in mind for them with such abounding love. And this is introduced in verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Paul's 
desired purpose is twofold. There's something for now and something for later, although both are interconnected. First, the outcome for now. By abounding in love, guided by real knowledge and discernment, Paul hopes that the Philippians might be equipped to approve the things that are excellent. Now, the word approve here is a word that was used to describe the testing of, of fine metals. Right, The quality of, of gold or silver uh, would often be tested by taking a portion of that, melting it down to see if there's any impurities that rise to the top. And if there, if there were little to no impurities, well, then they were sure that this was a fine quality and, much valuable, and very valuable metal. But if there was... Uh, other impurities that need, still needed to be cleaned out. It, it would still have value, but it wouldn't be considered as valuable. And so here, Paul has in mind that the Philippians would be thoroughly equipped to determine what was most excellent or what was the best possible choice, what has the most value. And this is much more than just being able to choose between what's good and what's evil and between the truth and what's a lie. Certainly those things would be included. No, the distinction is, is much finer. How to determine the difference between what is good and what is best. See, there are many things that are good that we can pursue in life, but that which is best or most excellent is knowing and loving Jesus Christ and living for His glory, praise, and honor. And of course, this is precisely what Paul will, will assert in chapter 3 when he notes, when he, he re, uh, thinks back to his education and his faithfulness to the law, his, his zeal, his being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, all these things which were considered to be good things. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But Paul now counts those things as rubbish when compared to the value of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been equipped to approve of the, uh, the most excellent things. And Jesus Christ is the most excellent thing. And so the point of Paul's prayer here is that as the Philippians would abound in their love with real knowledge and discernment, that they would be able to make choices that give evidence that the Lord has the place of prominence in their hearts, minds, and lives. In other words, that they might become increasingly Christ-like as their relationship with Christ grows and deepens. And again, giving evidence to it by their love for others. But not only will this ever-deepening relationship and growth toward Christ-likeness be a blessing to them now, and certainly a significant witness to those around them, But making this distinction that following Christ is the most valuable and the most excellent pursuit of our lives, this certainly has a significant bearing on the future. Especially the day of Christ, that is the day of judgment. Paul's desire is that their love would abound with knowledge and discernment so that as they progress toward that last great day, and then actually on that day, they might be found sincere and without offense or, or blameless before the judge of all the earth. Now already in these early verses of this letter, this is the second time Paul has mentioned the day of Christ. Paul is always challenging his audience and challenging us 
to always be looking forward to that great day. Because all we do here will have an impact on what happens then. His desire is that, that much, is that these much-beloved Philippian believers would not be found unprepared and lacking on that day, but that they would be pure in their hearts, having the very thoughts and desires of Christ, and not having stumbled or caused anyone to stumble, thus being blameless. And we too should be challenged to live our lives focused on becoming more like Christ in view of that coming day of judgment. Paul now concludes his prayer by identifying the source of these things. His desire is that the Philippians would would appear sincere and blameless on the last great day and that they will abound in love with knowledge and discernment, increasing in Christ-likeness until that day. But there will be possible but this will be possible. It will only be possible because they would have been, verse 11, filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now the fruit of righteousness fills them, which fills them is essentially the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no such law. Of course, the chief of these fruits is love. Which is why Paul focuses on it here. And you see, if they abound in love, well then certainly they will abound and overflow in all those other fruits as well. They will be like the tree David sings of in Psalm 1, uh, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Prospering and yielding such great and abundant fruit to the glory of God. But we have to be careful. This fruit of righteousness... This abounding more and more in their love for God, for one another, and for their neighbors, this becoming increasingly Christ-like, doesn't come by way of their own merits. That is, it isn't rooted and grounded in their own gifts and abilities. It's not in their own uh, good works, or their good nature, or their, even their own faithfulness, or own obedience. Not at all. All this abounding righteous fruit comes by Jesus Christ and by His grace. As Paul makes clear here. It's only through Christ, only through the grace, love, and strength that He provides that any of this will be accomplished. And Jesus had likened Himself previously to a vine and His disciples were the branches of that vine. But He made it very clear in John 15 verse 4. He says, Abide in Me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him bears much fruit. For without Me, you can do nothing. We can't be faithful. We can't be obedient. We can't be righteous. We can't abound in love and and in the fruits of the Spirit. We can't do those things without Christ and His Spirit working in us and through us.
We can do nothing outside of Christ. All the fruit we bear comes because we are attached and connected to Him through His Holy Spirit, which empowers and enables us to abound and prosper in fruitfulness. And this is also that in us and through us, God might be glorified and praised. This is Paul's desire for the Philippians. It's certainly my desire for you, and it should be the desire that we each have for one another and as a body together. That we might truly abound in our love and affection for God, for one another, and for our neighbors. So that the witness of the gospel might go forth as we live our lives now. So that we might be ready and prepared for that last great day. And so that our great God and Savior, who first loved us and poured out His grace and mercy upon us, even and especially when we didn't deserve it. So that that God, our God, the one true living God might truly be praised and glorified in and through us. All to the glory of His name. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks for the challenge and the reminder to us. Lord, we may think we do well at these things and maybe we do okay, but we know we can always improve. And we do pray that this would be our prayer for ourselves, for one another, for this body of believers. That we would truly abound in love. And that that love would overflow and and would be a great witness in this community. So that everyone who comes in contact with our congregation and, and the members they would know we truly are Christians. That we are followers of Jesus Christ. And it's not because of, of what we're doing. But it's because of your grace and your work, the work of your Spirit in us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would truly fill us to overflowing with your Spirit and with your love so that we can be true and faithful witnesses for your glory. Father, we pray especially that we would be mindful of these things and that we would first acknowledge how thankful we are because we realize we are unworthy to receive your love and yet you have graciously poured poured it out upon us through Jesus Christ. And so we praise you and thank you for that. We thank you for the precious gift that Jesus is to us. We ask, Father, that you would again fill us to overflowing so that we can serve you and glorify you as you have called us. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.